0: 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God the Father, blessed be the God and Father sorry, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here ends the second reading.
1: Uh, you just need to turn on the news, don't you, over the last month to see earthquakes and hurricanes. Now, a couple of weeks ago we had the Great North Run, which is a joyful event in many ways, but for a lot of people is run in memory, of people that they've lost or is run against, things that we can't yet cure. Why then, given this suffering, doesn't God do something about it? That's led some people to conclude that either God is good, but he simply isn't powerful enough to do anything about it, in which case he isn't really God at all. Or the alternative is that God chooses not to do anything about suffering, in which case he isn't good. Either way, the all-powerful, all-loving, good God that Christians claim to believe in cannot exist. And this is a big problem that's not just been asked in our day, but it's been asked throughout history. But I'm guessing that it's not the logical, philosophical, logical barrier to God's existence that brings us here this morning. It's not the reason why three times... Uh, More people picked this question than any other in our survey. Now the problem isn't so much out there. How is it possible that God and suffering exist? It's in here. Our questions are, why has God allowed this to happen to me? Or has this happened to this person? If that's where you find yourself this morning, then I want to say thank you. Thank you for being willing to listen to what God has to say about this topic. But I also want to say to you that I don't have an answer. There isn't a section, a chapter in the Bible that I could pick that will tell you why what has happened has happened to you. In fact, when we try and make a link between our suffering and past actions, Jesus himself encourages us not to do that. What I do have is God's word which helps us to understand something of what suffering is like of what the purpose behind it might be, and how on earth we're going to live through it until one day it ends forever. I've got three points I want to make this morning, and the first one is this. Suffering isn't natural. Suffering isn't natural. Suffering is real, and suffering does hurt. The writers of the Bible knew this uh, more than most people. But if you to pick up your Bible and you to turn to the first page and to Genesis chapter one, you'll see that suffering is not something that God intended. Genesis one records the creation of the world, and when each stage of it is completed, God says this: God saw it and it was good. The world in its original intended state does not contain suffering. There is no crying, there is no disease, there is no pain, there is no death. Now, why is it important for us to know this? Why does the Bible tell us this on the very first page? Well, suffering hurts, doesn't it? Even when it doesn't happen to us, even when we observe it happening far away, our hearts scream out, that isn't right, it shouldn't be like that. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Why is our gut reaction when we see suffering, even if it doesn't affect us personally, to say, that's wrong? It shouldn't be like this. Why is it that we feel so intensely wronged by suffering and evil? You see, if we don't believe in God, then these sufferings, these disasters are, are natural. In fact, that's what we call them, isn't it? We call them natural disasters. We say that people die of natural causes. But the Bible says that there is nothing natural about these things. The Apostle Paul talks about the whole of the universe, the whole of creation groaning like a mother in the midst of childbirth, waiting for something to be done about the pain that we feel. He says that we groan inwardly for the same reason. Isn't that how you feel when you watch the news? Don't you groan inwardly? I said before that the problem of evil and the problem of suffering is one of the biggest ones that Christians face. It's one of the most serious objections to a belief in the God of the Bible. But if we don't believe in the God of the Bible, then suffering doesn't go away. And neither does the problem of suffering. In fact, it just gets worse. Because we have to grapple with all the pain and suffering that is around us. And we have to say something like this. These are the words of Richard Dawkins. He says, The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. But that's not how you feel about suffering, is it? That's not how I feel. It's not natural. It's not indifferent. It's wrong because there is good and there is evil. We feel those things and we feel them deeply. And the Bible says, you're right. Things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And in fact, God has done something wonderful to address this. How though, given that we do live in a world that is filled with suffering, and given that this is not the way that things are meant to be, how are we meant to live through this? Well, that's where the passage that we read a little bit earlier on uh, comes in. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and those first seven verses. Um, if you've got one of those Bibles in front of you, uh, then please turn up to page 1014. I think the passage is also printed out uh, in your service sheet as well. Uh, Peter wrote this letter, First Peter, to people who were in the midst of suffering and who were going to suffer even more. In verse 1, you'll see that the letter is addressed to the exiles of the dispersion. That is to a group of refugees, Christians who had fled from their homes and were now scattered across Asia Minor. Why had they fled? Well, because they lived as Christians under the reign of Emperor Nero. A man who used to take Christian believers and set fire to them and use them as torches to light his garden. And the first thing that Peter tells these suffering refugees is that their suffering isn't meaningless. Listen to what he writes to these people who have lost everything in verse 3 of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead When we are grieved by various trials, uh, as Peter says, this group of Christians have been, our temptation, can it not, is to run away from God. To push back and say, if you really do exist, then I don't have an awful lot of time for what you have to say right now. But Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Jesus Christ. How on earth can he say this to this group of people? Uh, My wife and I have uh, three kids, and our youngest one uh, is Lucy. Uh, She's three, Uh, and of course she's uh, very precious to us. A few weeks ago, though, we took her to a place that she'd never been to before, and we allowed a stranger to take a sharp piece of metal and to pierce her skin with it. Doing so caused her to break down uh, in floods of tears. Why would we do something like that? Well, hopefully you've put two and two together by now and guessed that this sharp piece of metal was a needle, uh, which was delivering her latest round of preventative injections. But as that needle pierced her skin, there was real pain, if only for a moment. Now, it's easy for us to see that this was all done for a reason. It was done to prevent something worse happening. But it wasn't easy for her to see. Peter says the same thing is true for these believers. The trials that they are going through are testing. But they are producing something that is valuable. Look at verse 7. Peter says that these things are happening so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This suffering was not without purpose or without meaning. Rather, God was using it to achieve something specific, something valuable, something that was worth it. The answer to how can a good God allow suffering is simply that there is some greater reasoning behind that suffering. And just like my three-year-old didn't fully understand why she had to get those injections... So often we don't fully understand why we have to go through the suffering that we do. But in spite of that, Peter says that we should not run away from God, but rather run to him and trust him. But why should we? We can perhaps understand why my three-year-old doesn't run away from me now, despite the fact that I let her have that injection. She knows that I love her. There's reason for that, there's evidence. Well Peter says that Christians have exactly the same evidence and it comes to its most glorious conclusion in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And it's by looking back at Jesus' death and resurrection that we are able to cope with suffering. Because Jesus' death and resurrection shows us two things that are true about suffering. The first one is this. It shows us that God knows about our suffering. Jesus Christ was God, became man. This is the unique claim of Christianity. No other religion claims it that God Himself left heaven and became man and suffered as we suffered. In the pages of the Bible, we read of Jesus' suffering. We read that he was tired, that he was hungry. That he wept over the loss of a friend. That he saw sickness and disease and that those things moved him to tears. We see that he was rejected by his own people. Even those who were closest to him abandoned him in his deepest hour of need. Our reading earlier from Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. See, the Bible tells us not just that God sees our suffering and that he sympathizes with it, but that he's experienced it himself. And as I said before, all of this has its fullest realization at the cross, where Jesus Christ, God himself, is crucified as a common criminal, where he is mocked, where he is spat upon where he endures the most excruciating physical pain. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. And more than that, we see Jesus experience a suffering on a level that none of us will ever go through, no matter how horrific the suffering that we have experienced is. Because we see Jesus, a man who was entirely innocent, having the sins of the whole world been laid upon him, and we see the person who is closest to him, God the Father, turn his face away from the son that he loves. God knows that suffering because he has experienced it for himself. Secondly, Jesus' death and resurrection shows us that suffering is not meaningless. Because why would Jesus suffer in the way that he did? Why would he choose to live the unimaginable joy of heaven To experience the unimaginable pain of the cross. Well again that passage from Isaiah that we read earlier gives us the answer. Isaiah 53 in verse 5 says this. But he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Jesus chose to suffer. But he didn't suffer in a meaningless way. He chose to suffer so that we would not have to suffer. He chose to be abandoned so that we would not have to be abandoned like he was. He chose to die and to face God's punishment so that we would not have to die and face it. And the proof of all this, the thing that Peter tells those Christians to look back on, is Jesus' resurrection. The ultimate proof that suffering need not be meaningless is when the person who suffered beyond any other level of suffering, by that suffering, achieves what no one else could, our salvation. We know a God as Christians who has not just experienced suffering, but who has chosen to suffer on our behalf. That is the living hope. That Peter puts before these Christians. That is the evidence. That allows us to trust God. With our suffering. <laughs> so suffering isn't natural. It's not the way that the world was created to be. And suffering isn't meaningless. Because God has chosen to suffer on our behalf. So that we could be freed from it. Peter tells us to look back at the cross. To see that suffering isn't Meaningless. Then he tells us to look forward to heaven to see that suffering will not last forever. In 1977, a man uh, called Douglas Scott uh, took on Banath Brak, a notorious Pakistani mountain uh, known locally as the Ogre. Almost 25 years after Everest had been conquered, nobody had been able to reach the summit uh, of the Ogre. Scott was determined that he'll be the first. On July 13, 1977, uh, Scott and his climbing partner, Chris Bonington, scaled the 250-metre pinnacle of rock that stood at the ogre's peak. Uh, Since it was already uh, late by the time that they reached the summit, they decided to speed up their descent by abseiling back down the face of the mountain. This wasn't a good decision. A gust of wind uh, caught Douglas Scott And as he he tried to make his way down the side of the mountain, smashed him against the rock face, shattering both his legs. Since only his lower legs were broken, Scott managed incredibly to abseil the rest of the way down, using his knees to push off the rock face. Fortunately, uh, the pair were joined by two of the members of the expedition. But unfortunately, they were still 2,000 meters away from their base camp. A blizzard closed in which forced them to take shelter in a cave for two days where they used up the rest of their rations. Scott knew uh, that the rest of the team would be unable to carry him down, especially as Bonington had already broken two of his ribs in a separate fall. There was only one path to survival. He was going to have to climb down, crawl down the rest of the mountain. Scott crawled for seven days on his hands and knees down one of the highest mountain peaks in the world. By the time that he had finished, he had worn through four four sets of clothes, four layers of clothes, and his knees were a bloody pulp. He did all of this with two untreated broken legs and on starvation rations. And yet he still moved so fast that the rest of the team sometimes had to call ahead of him to stop so that they could catch up. Hope is an incredibly powerful force, isn't it? When there is just the slightest chance that we might get through it, human beings can endure terrible suffering. Hope enables us to do incredible things. Incredible, incredible, it allowed this man, Scott, to do an incredible thing, to get down off that mountain. So look again and see the hope that Peter writes about in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Why? Because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does this hope achieve? What does it look forward to? Verse 4 tells us, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Scott was able to get down that mountain despite facing incredible suffering because he had just the sliver of hope that he might survive. Peter says that as Christians who place their faith in Almighty God, we have a hope that goes far beyond that. It's a hope not that's uncertain that there might be a small chance that we might survive, not a desperate hope that we just keep putting one foot in front of the other in the vague hope that something might get better. It is a true and a certain hope that one day God will end all suffering. Suffering isn't forever, and that makes a huge difference to our experience of it. See, people often ask, don't they, why doesn't God do something about suffering? But as we've already seen, God has done something about suffering. He's done something incredible. He's given up his own precious son to death on a cross. The issue with suffering now is that we haven't yet seen the full effects of that victory which Christ won on the cross. So Peter says that in order to cope with suffering now, as well as looking back to the cross, we must look forward to heaven and to Jesus' return when all suffering will end. Deutsch-Gerski, in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, writes this. One of the characters says, I believe, like a child, that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at that moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That is an incredible thing to say. That is an incredible thing to hope in. But Christians can hope in that because it's the promise of the Bible. It's the promise of (laughs) Jesus' resurrection. That God has done something about suffering and that it worked because Jesus Christ did not just die for our sin and did not just die to end suffering but that he was raised from the dead to prove that one day we will be raised with him and we will go to be with him and we will enjoy a place where there is no suffering where there is no pain where all those hurts, where all those wrongs will come undone whereas C.S. Lewis puts it Everything bad will come untrue. On that day, even the most unimaginable suffering will be replaced with an unimaginable joy. (coughs) I begin uh, with the first page of the Bible, which tells us that suffering is not natural, that we are right to cry out and to rail against it. Let me finish by reading from almost the last page of the Bible. Uh, From Revelation chapter 21, which sets before us the hope of heaven. John writes this Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning that you are a God who has not just seen our suffering, but has chosen to endure it for our sakes. Lord, we praise you for the Lord Jesus, who in love went to the cross so that we did not have to experience the suffering that he experienced. Lord, we ask for your help whilst we live in a world that is full of suffering and strife to trust in that living hope that one day Jesus will return and for those of us who trust in him, we will go to be with him in a place where all suffering will end and where we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.